Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Clebo and I am your host today. So let's bring in the co-hosts, Caleb Wells. Hey y'all. How's hey, it going? How's it going in New Orleans? Uh, pretty good. Just the normal torrential downpours, flooding, alligators walking the streets. We actually had a tornado this week. Wow. Wow. Oh wow. We're, we're in a drought. Can you see it? I uh, did not did not see it. It was it was in a different part of New Orleans, but yeah. Have you like just seen a tornado? Just, oh yeah, sure. I've I've actually had one. Um, this was in Georgia, but I've had one jump over my house, the front to the back, and take a trampoline and just fall it in half. And I sat and watched it. So, oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So we're in a <laughs> drought. We're like three inches below normal of rain. Uh, that's not good. We, have, we, we we got lots and lots and lots of rain mm. right now. So, all right, you're the co-host, uh, Bailu. Yeah, how you doing, everyone? <laughs> yeah. So, why since since Australia it's it's uh, Saturday, can you give us our fortune for tomorrow? <laughs> What's going to happen to us tomorrow? Oh, you don't want to know. Um, <laughs> can I sleep in? Oh, you can definitely sleep in. Yeah, <laughs> if your kids will let you. Uh, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our guest today is Chris Sainty. Welcome, Chris. Hey, how are we? How are we all doing? Good, good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, welcome. So we got Australia, we got US, and we brought in the UK. <laughs> what part of yeah. UK are you in? So I'm in uh, I'm in a county called Norfolk, which is the kind of east coast. So I live in a, a city called Norwich. Um, quite nice very very old city lots of nice medieval buildings and nice history and pretty little streets and things like that so it's a it's a nice it's a nice place to live it's it's kind of one of those cities that's small enough it doesn't feel like a city if you know what i mean so yeah it's, it's nice and we're not too far from the coast either it's sort of about a 35 40 minute drive and you're at the the north norfolk coast with beaches and and all that which is good for dog walking so we've got a dog and stuff so yeah, do people go to the beach in um in england not, the not water to be because like, not to, not to not swim, to swim. <laughs> like that's just crazy now actually the north norfolk coast is really good if you're into water sports so they do yeah. like a lot of windsurfing and, and things like that there so i mean you need like a decent wetsuit we're talking like a five mil wetsuit or something to 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 like stomach the north sea uh the north sea so, chills but it, it's um yeah it's quite popular i think and a few years ago like uh, a bit further around the coast here they they had like a the world uh jet ski championships or or something like that or something along those lines it was some world event or whatever so um yeah in sleepy old norfolk here we do have some some decent water sports at times so yeah that's good yeah, I'm from I'm from in the northern U.S. and so I I expect you know the, the water to be cold in the ocean and things like that. And I remember going to Hawaii for the first time, and I went up to the water and like put my toes in. It's like expecting it to be cold. It's like yeah, can wait just a lie second. there. What? Huh? That's, wait a second. That's that's warm. <laughs> that's something wrong with that man. It's just it was totally not expected. Just I was just totally naive that that it was going to be that much difference in the the ocean temperature. Yeah, that'd be lovely to be able to do that. <laughs> and you know with new orleans we just have marsh i mean if you want to go to actual beach you probably need to drive past mobile alabama which is you know two states over from here so it's several hours wow we don't have the beach in new orleans we have lots of other stuff just no beach yeah but because of the delta yeah all right talk blazer we've had a couple of shows on blazer 
But those are just kind of been introduction shows and, and kind of about what's been changing with Blazor. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris, you know, how you got into development and .NET and then how you got into Blazor. Yeah, cool. So I'm, so I've been working with .NET for 16 years probably now, I think something like that. So I started off my career building computers back when you still built computers um, and sort of building networks for sort of small local companies and bits. I was working for a, for a local company at that point in time. And the company I was working for used to do a bit of software development. So uh, they were doing VB5, VB6 stuff. And then my, I, my boss at the time said to me, uh, it's about time you started learning some development, Chris, because we've got a few more projects coming up. It'd be good to have another pair of hands. But I don't see the point in you getting into the, into VB6 because there's new there's this thing called .NET and I think it might be quite it might be quite big, so you should probably learn that. And fair play to him, he was he was quite right on that one. So I I I, start, I think I started .NET had been out a little bit. I think it was like on what like either it was either very very shortly before like 1.1 or or very very shortly after 1.1 came out. So yeah, so I, I just started playing around with it and, and and kind of went from there. Did you start with VB.net or or did you go with C Sharp? Yeah, so I had to, yeah start with VB. So because we we sort of had in house knowledge of VB six, there was a bit of kind yeah, of translation yeah. there, so that helped. And C Sharp was so new, that, like my boss didn't even really. I don't think he the boss at the time didn't really knew it under like or understood like it was there or anything. So it was just straight to VB. Yeah, so that was that was kind of it really. And then next job was a full time developer job, and that again was doing .net and and uh, VB. And then the job after that was when I moved over to C Sharp. So that was probably a couple of years later, I would have thought. And that's just been C Sharp, .NET all the way through. Always been web development as well. I've never sort of really been one for desktop development and things. I quite like the web. So yeah, and then time went on and Spars came around. I, I went into Angular, I think, uh, like a lot of people in .NET sort of started off building Angular JS apps for front end. And then moved over to angular when that came out so that was that was an interesting time um, and yeah and then it's it's been it's been really interesting for me because me as a developer i've always been really interested in the front end uh, i think as a net developer i've always almost feel like i was slightly out of place in a way because i was like i really liked the ui and ux perspective of doing things and i i found that really interesting i was i i like back end but i, I I'm quite a visual person, I think. So I quite like starting with a UI. I'd start with a UI and work backwards rather than the other way around. Whereas most .NET developers... Spark was a game changer in that, isn't it? A lot of oh, .NET is basically found. Yeah, they could. yeah, definitely. Although saying that, I, I, the biggest revolution for me actually was going from web forms to MVC. Because web forms always felt mm. so clunky to me. I just, it never felt... I mean, it. you could be really productive. You could build stuff really quickly, but when you were, I was looking at like web technologies and it just never seemed to fit with the web. It felt like trying to make a desktop app in a web mm. browser. And, well, it and, was really, wasn't it? Like, um, yeah, exactly. The, the path new. Yeah. Yeah. So um, MVC for me was a real big revolution. So I was like, oh my God, it finally feels like I'm building a web app now, not trying to make a desktop app shoehorn into a web paradigm. I think that was the first technology where it felt like I was, I was trying to introduce a kind of like that opinionated pattern, you know, like the yeah. the framework where essentially there's like, you know, you can, there's multiple ways of doing things, but there's generally one you know, accepted way of doing things. And yeah, the best you can go off, off pattern if you want, but 
the entire internet is um is have got this one way. So if you want the support, you have to you know, do it that way. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I completely agree. So yes, yeah, so that was great. But yeah, this is where so coming more up to modern times, I'm now working for a, a startup in London. I'm a principal developer there. It's quite a cool place to work because we're a female-founded startup and we're also a very heavily biased female company. So I think there's only four, there's 14 of us and I think there's only like three or four guys in it and the, the rest is women. And it's it's such a, it's such a nice environment to work in. I, I work with some very intelligent women, which is is really cool. So, so that's been, that's been really great. Been there about eight months now. Um, and we're building our, all our platform front ends are all built in Blazor. Blazor's kind of been the missing piece of the puzzle for me. It's been that thing that I wanted, which was the ability to use C Sharp, which is a language I love, you know, .NET, but be able to build these kind of rich spa UIs. Like I said, I'm not, a, I'm not, a hater of javascript i've i've used javascript for many years and it's served me well and it, it you know it's brought the web to where it is at the end of the day but i i also think it's about time the web had some choice in that arena and i think that's you know technologies like web assembly are so exciting because it's not that they're trying to kill off existing ones it's just that they're offering choice and i i just never i just never think that choice is a bad thing you know it drives innovation it will make everybody better um mm. And every other aspect of programming, we have multiple choices about how we do things apart from that browser environment where we've always been sort of stuck with JavaScript, no matter what other uh, sort of thing you can put in front of it and cleverly transpile to JavaScript, you're ultimately you're always dealing with JavaScript and things. So I think that's where Blazor was like this thing that I was like oh my god that is what I've been missing that's the thing I've been I've been going for and I've been sort of involved with Blazor now since before the first preview came out where I I think it came out in like the first preview came out in like March or something of like 2018 I think because Steve Sanderson did his original talk at NDC Oslo in September 2017 I think it was I remember I found the repo in, in, in February and then I think literally two weeks after that, they put the first preview out. And I think I spent that first two weeks trying to build it from source. So yeah, it was, that, that's, yeah. And then the rest is history as it were. And along the way of sort of discovering Blazor, I found my passion for blogging. So I started blogging because <laughs> I think like a lot of developers, I was like, it's something I want to do, but I never knew what I wanted to blog about. I was ASP.NET felt just too broad and there was other people who are very very good likes of like Andrew Locke and Steve Gordon and and that who are very very accomplished bloggers I felt like I, I'm not sure I can make a dent on them and things and then Blazor and I was like oh my god I'm just and it, it was that thing of oh my god I want to tell the world about this and it was the thing to put in my blog so that was that went well and then blogging led to speaking and MVP awards and conferences and, and whatever else which is really weird because i'm if you'd have seen 20 year old me 20 year old me would have never ever stood in front of people in front of a room of people i could literally never think of anything more terrifying than than sitting in front or standing in front of a room of people doing a talk and now i think i've got nearly 20 under my belt which it's weird when you find the right thing you can get over these fears it's yeah it's very strange it's very strange at times i kind of look and don't really recognize myself with some of this stuff <laughs> It's yeah, really the topic awesome. really topic really makes a difference on you know how yeah. you feel, you know, presenting. 
with Blazor, do you think it's going to be easier for people to get into development? Because, right, your primary framework and language you'll be able to use in both the front end and the back end, and you won't have to learn Angular or React or Vue or no JavaScript inside and out. Yeah, I think it's. I think anytime we don't have the context switching, it's going to make it easier for new for new people into a into a ecosystem. If you're learning .NET on the back end, you're learning you know you're learning C sharp. To learn Blazor, it's not a big leap because it's still just C sharp. Yeah, we're going to mix in some HTML and some CSS, but those that kind of learning curve isn't particularly steep compared to learning something like C Sharp and, and, and the .NET frameworks. So yes, I think it will help. And I think as well, like for existing developers who are, who are .NET developers who are maybe have been standoffish about web development because they don't want to learn JavaScript and they don't want to deal with kind of what's, I think what, what looks to people who have, have kind of been career-based .NET developers to be a very chaotic world because it is next to .NET. .NET's one of, I think, probably the strengths of .NET is its stability and its backing of Microsoft for long-term support. And, you know, I think that's why it gets used in so many enterprises because they can count on it working and not changing. The sands aren't shifting underneath their feet. And so I think a lot of .NET developers who maybe want to get into into front end and web development and have been worried about having to deal with all of that JavaScript stuff. Again, I think it offers a path for them as well. So it's not just new developers maybe to development. It's also an opportunity for people who have been in the .NET world, but maybe just stayed away from that part of it. And I think as the Blazor story continues to develop, I think it could be a very interesting framework to learn long-term because looking at sort of the plans that Microsoft seem to have for it, shaping up like it could be a, you know, almost like a universal UI framework for, for any types of UI. And again, .NET, I think, is, is one of its strengths is it's sort of the ability to build things very efficiently. You know, Microsoft do a good job at taking care of a lot of boilerplate for, for us and things like that. And being able to learn one UI framework, potentially and being able to write UI for web, for mobile, for desktop, but using the same paradigms, using the same programming models, component model, I think that's very exciting as well. Yeah, here is a is a good upgrade path for for like legacy web forms applications. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a guide. There's a guide that Microsoft have published now, like an ebook specifically targeted web forms developers. And it, I think it's literally called like Blazor for web forms developers. So I think it's definitely seen as the upgrade path for people who are coming from those types of apps, and it's an opportunity for them to move forward. And then Jeff Fritz has done a fantastic project with the community where he's literally created all of the controls that you you have in web forms. He's created the Blazor component equivalents and tried to, uh, you know, I think as closely as possible, match the APIs of the, the stuff from web forms. So, I mean, it's not like you're going to run a tool over it and it's just going to convert it for you, but you can definitely substitute stuff in and, you know, depending on how you're, you know, how it's been architected and whatever, you could probably start to slowly convert chunks of it using those components and the great thing there is your your development team who might know web forms really well can now start to learn blazes component model but using the apis they already understand and it's a it's a great path forward so i think the story for that legacy 
that legacy transition is is really great with Blazor. And I think Microsoft have done a really good job at, at sort of targeting those people as well and not leaving them behind and saying, well, no, you've just got to make a huge leap and that's how it is, I think. So I think, yeah, I think they've done a great job with that. Yeah, I'm looking at doing something like that because one of the applications that I'm working on right now is kind of a Frankenstein app. It's got web forms, it's got MVC, it's got web API, it's got AngularJS, it's got Angular, everything all in one solution. So breaking out into separate projects, but it's all those technologies inside one application. And, and it would be really nice to kind of move everything towards a single platform that, to run things on. Yeah, yeah. And I think Blazor can do that, especially with that, that web forms project, because that's one of the, the heaviest lifts going from the old you know, full framework into core or .NET 5 or 6 is you know, moving that, the, all the web form stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And one of the big things with web forms was the fact that it had all these built-in controls, wasn't it? And it, that was how, how it became so productive because you didn't have to go and work out how to build a grid because the grid was there. You just plugged in the data source and off it went. So I think, like you say, having those controls available in Blazor now is, is, is such a helpful, helpful thing for that migration. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I went to the Angular direction because Angular was very familiar to me being a web forms developer, you know, having the component model, yeah. but really built much better and uh, more performant and, and better user experience, really. Yeah, definitely. So you're actually writing a book for Manning called Blazor in Action. Did did that come about because of the, the blogging and speaking? And can you... Can you give us a little sneak peek into what you're going to be be uh, be going into in the book? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's re- really what this is another great example of something that a couple of years ago you'd have never seen me. I would never, t- I wouldn't believe you that I was doing this. <laughs> so, I've over the couple of years, like a few years of blogging that I've been doing, sort of a few sort of writing opportunities have come up i've i've written articles for telerik and stack overflow and a few other places uh visual studio magazine is another another one as well and yeah and then one day i kind of get this email from an acquisition editor at manning and i was really fortunate to really <laughs> really great people put me forward one was andrew Locke, i think and so so that was that was really amazing and the other one was jeremy Littles. so that that was that was really that was really kind of humbling and yeah they just sort of said would you be interested in submitting a proposal and so i thought okay well i'll i'll fill out the proposal and i'll see what happens and i i i sort of filled out the majority of it and, and sent it off to them and was like i'm kind of going down this direction is this kind of what you think and like next thing i know they're like yeah that's cool that's enough we're good to we're, we're so was it, was it proposal ahead. like what topic to write or was it like literally like i'm going to write a blazer book and yeah so it was already chapters it was already they, they wanted a blazer book so it yeah. was kind of like what would your take be on you know what would your take be on doing that what kind of and you know you, have, you kind of have to submit like a sample toc like table of contents and um, yeah. covering like the topics and things like that and you yeah and you just hope that they like it <laughs> which they yeah they seem they seemed happy with it so i've been writing writing it now for like i think literally this month is a year um, oh wow I, I genuinely cannot i cannot believe how much work it is like you know you people think, tell you that books are hard but yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, especially in especially in something like blazer where you'd think in a year's like 
you know, it's, it's kind of like cutting cutting edge thing. So things would have changed in, in a year. Like, are you, are you like making edits as as you're reading like things coming out of Microsoft? Like, oh damn, it's not applicable yeah. anymore. You know? Yeah. Um. So yes and no. You'll be amazed actually. The I think the the .NET team have done such an amazing job with the component model of Blazor that there haven't been any breaking changes in this time. Like nothing has catastrophically broke. Like, for example, when Andrew Locke was writing ASP.NET Core in action, he did it through the 1.1 to 2 timeframe where we had the project JSON slash CSProj thing where the whole, the whole thing changed entirely. And, you know, he was left like having to rewrite half a book or whatever. And it just hasn't happened with Blazor. They, the, I think the pro that, component model they designed has just been it's just been such a great they just they just seem to really nail it so they've all, all it's really been is a case of some new features have been appearing which for me as an author has actually been great because it's just like okay you can add really easily going back and editing mm. is, is harder work so the dilemma i find is it's more a case of Oh, that'd be really great in the book now. How do I, <laughs> how do I either shoehorn it into an existing chapter or talk my editor into letting me write another one? And yeah, so that's kind of it. But yeah, but other than that, it's it's not been yeah, it's not been too bad at all. And even when you look at the stuff from going .NET five to .NET six, with obviously .NET six is out in November, and like again, there's not any sort of breaking changes as such. There's just some some more new features. So yeah, so it's not been it's not been too bad really, but. It's kind of weird. I'm not the quickest writer as well, so that doesn't that doesn't help because I'm sort of not. I sort of have sort of struggled with dyslexia a bit and things. So when I I write stuff and I will literally reread my own paragraph like four or five times because it takes that many times to get it to go in, and then I go, oh no, that's rubbish. I should probably rewrite that. <laughs> so that can be a bit slow at times, but get there and. Yeah, I, it's quite good as well because Manning had the Meet program, the Manning Early Access. So from, I think, chapter two or three, it's been available for people to buy in its current state. So as I write chapters, they publish them mm. straight out to the Meet program. So what's what's nice there is people get to feedback directly about the book. There's a forum that's kind of in the live book system and they can literally leave comments against individual lines of the book and say like, hmm, like this doesn't make sense to me or you know this actually mm. really useful or or whatever so I, I found that really like really valuable as an author like to be able to kind of get that early feedback and be able to incorporate it in the book to make sure that it's as useful as it can be for for whoever you know whoever ends up buying it in terms of what we're covering though the book is basically a kind of introduction or n- not an introduction to blazer but it's aimed at it's aimed at kind of beginners with blazer so it's not like an advanced book. It's not going to go into loads of like really like edge casey, high end performance, like that kind of stuff. Because like there's just not a there's not that you know that not that many big apps in Blazor and, and that at the moment. So people aren't kind of hitting those problems. It's more you know people are trying to onboard to Blazor. They want to understand it. They want to know how do I get going with it? How do I build stuff with it? So it's it's aimed at that that level of of user, and and then it just works through from sort of the bait. Well, what I see is what I would how I would teach someone. So I start off by talking about, you know, initially like the difference between Blazor server and Blazor WebAssembly, the project difference, the project template differences, like with Web, WebAssembly standalone and WebAssembly hosted. And then after kind of that, that's kind of in chapter two. And then from chapter three onwards, the book starts uh, to develop a app that we use throughout the, the whole book. So what's, I've 
find that in books I've read, I really like that technique where I, I, this continual app was there through the whole lifetime of the book and I'm adding to it. And it, I think for me as well, I've, I felt like it gave an opportunity for people who are reading the book to end up with an app that's a real thing. They can get their hands around it and they can go back and they can always, they don't always have to go back to the book to refer to it something. They can go back to the code if they're following along with the code and actually go, oh, how do I do that again? Oh, I, don't, I won't bother trying to find it in the book. I can just go to that, my GitHub repo and just check it and, and stuff. So, so yeah, so we just start building up this, this uh, app called Blazing Trails, which is a, an app for sort of submitting uh, hiking routes and, and stuff. So, um, yeah, so that, mm-hmm. that's kind of my, my cheesy demo app that I've come up with. But we cover all the basics of the component model, how components communicate with each other, forms of validation. We've got authentication. We've got JavaScript interop in there. Sort of everything really you'd expect that you kind of want to know if you were going to be building apps with this with this framework. And I tried to cover as well some, obviously what I don't want to end up doing and what I've tried really hard is to make sure I don't end up just repeating the, the docs because nobody wants to just read the docs in a, in a rewritten way. So... I, I've covered alternative validation systems. So I talk about fluent validations instead of data annotations because, you know, that's a really popular library, but obviously Microsoft are going to talk about data annotations. So I cover that and I try to think of more real world problems that people have. So like with the CSS isolation, for example, I show how to use it with SAS and how you can compile your SAS and then have it go through this, the CSS isolation. Because again, in a real world app, people are probably more likely to want to use something like SAS than regular CSS. So I'm just trying to, like I say, bring some real world problems into the space rather than just kind of the more isolated examples of, of functionality that you tend to get in, a, in, in, in any docs system. And some things as well, like how you organize apps. Like I've tried to be, because Blazor is so unopinionated and the, and the team are making such a big effort at being unopinionated. I just see questions all the time. I get asked all the time, like, so how, what's the best practice though? What should I do? Is it MVVM? I should be doing MVVM, shouldn't I? Or I should be doing MV, I should be doing some MVC variant or I should be doing X. And it's just like, well, actually, no, the genuine answer is whatever you're happy with, it will, it will work just as well. Like it's just what you're comfortable with. Personally, I'm a huge fan of vertical slice architecture. So I really like a feature folder model where I've got feature folders and everything that belongs to a feature is in a, is in a single folder. So that's a holdover from your Angular days, I think. Yes, feature folders was first. That's the first time I was introduced it. I think it was, was it John Papa's style guide? I think was the one that I read, I think initially. And that was the first time I'd seen feature folders. And it was like that, you know, those one of those light bulb moments that you have as a developer. And that was one of those for me. I was like, oh my God, like, because I'd worked on some big MVC apps. And like, if anybody has done that, where you've got these massive MVC apps all divided by type, adding features is horrible. Like going through a list of controllers that's like, or going in a controllers folder, it's got like 150 controllers in it. Then you go in a views folder with like 150 views. <laughs> oh my God, it's just terrible. Like it's, there's not a great experience. Whereas going like saying like, I'm on my, you know, my user profile, you know, my user profile page, I want to go and add a new, a new field onto the form. Okay, right. Well, what do I do? I go features user profile. Boom, everything I need is now in that folder. My, my CSS is in there. My components are in there. The, the, the page components in there, like everything. I don't have to jump around. It's, it's, and I've even like, I think even in the last sort of six months as well, I've really, 
I'm like really sort of trying to break, I think, a lot of C sharp kind of stuff that you get drilled into when you when you're a junior dev of like even keeping things in in the same file. So I've got five files, multiple classes in them because they're small and like it, it, it just doesn't warrant having lots and lots of individual files. I can just have them all in one file and things like that. And it, the productivity boost is, is crazy. You know, it, it's not, it's weird, but you think about those few seconds of tabbing around between files. If you think of that over the course of a week, that actually tops up to time, like actual time. It, mm. it sounds like such a small micro optimization, but actually genuinely, it genuinely does. It. And as well for, I think when you're, kind of cognitive load when you're when you're thinking through a problem having actually having all the code in front of you does help you reason the problem or at least it does for me so i've i've really liked that i've I've, i think i think uh jimmy bogart i think is probably the the guy who's i think the the guy came up the vertical size style and like I've, i've i've always been a big fan of jimmy's stuff and yeah i just again i latched onto that and i've i've used it now it, it, two different companies with two completely different teams tackling two completely different problem sets and it's worked just as well in both styles because building vertical you know vertical features in isolation is just it's just such a great way to work you just never have to worry about breaking something else it's it's just it's just so different and when was the last time you know you change stuff across a you know you, when, when was the last time a change request comes in that affects things horizontally it, it's it's always vertically it's always a feature of ui through to db it's you know you very rarely if ever go oh i know what we should do that new feature that goes right across our application layer you just don't tend to do that stuff so um, um, once once you do authentication and authorization which is you know, kind of the horizontal thing you know you just kind yeah. of leave it so exactly yeah definitely and um I think more and more people want apps that can change quickly, like businesses are wanting to change quicker. They want, you know, they want us as developers to be able to respond to change quicker. And obviously that methods like agile and things are, you know, uh, are, are helping with that. Um, but ultimately if, if your code base is hard to change, you, you, you know, you're always gonna, you're always gonna struggle to keep up speed wise. And, and I think as bigger apps, as apps get bigger and bigger with these, lots and lots of layers and this intricacy, you know, over time and bigger development teams, you start seeing the original nice, neat kind of formed architecture. You suddenly see like these little cross calls going and all of a sudden people don't want to change something because 10 things call into it. and Nobody really knows what those 10 things are anymore because, you know, the guys who are there or the people who are there who first wrote it are now not there anymore and no one really remembers the history. And so you just, now that thing works and we just leave it alone. And whereas I think, what I've found at least with vertical slices is that never tends to happen because things are isolated and, and and you can just go, you know what, this doesn't need to work like this anymore. We'll just throw it away and just rebuild it. And I can, and you know, you can do that confident in the fact that the stuff either side won't be affected. And that's a very liberating experience um, as a developer when you can have that confidence to, to do that. And with dot, with, with .NET and Blazor, that architecture is so nice. Like having that, having those C-sharp models being able to be shared between front-end and, and back-end through that slice just makes that experience so slick. And, and the developers I work with have, have all kind of said how much more simple it makes, feels. And um, and I think what always usually then comes up about that one is then, well, what do you do? Yeah, but if everything's isolated, what do you do about shared logic and things? And 
And my answer to that is usually the same thing. A, most of the time, what you think is shared code is not actually shared code. It's, it's things that look very, very similar, and they might even have a very similar shape. But if it's got a, if it's got a, if it's got a, that's got a property more than that one, then they're not the same thing. They're representing different ideas of the same thing. And, and over time, they might grow even further apart. So if you couple them now and just say, well, there's only one property difference. Well, in, in a year's time, when there's six properties that are different, what are you going to do? Like it, 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 so I, I find that's one thing. And, and if there is genuine reuse, we push that into a, into a domain object. And, and that's probably where it should be anyway, because it's representing you know, some domain you know, business-based behavior that should be in a domain in the first place. So we've got all of that in this, in this really tight core that's really easy to unit test and, and, and everything. And then above that, we've just got these nice independent slices that we can just throw away and rework whenever we want and choose the best method you know, for that particular problem, like I'll enter the framework here or dapper instead this time because we need something more sort of performant or this time we're going to go off to, a, you know, a gRPC service and do something. And, you know, we're not just constrained by a choice that was made a year ago because that's what we decided on the architecture was just going to work like this and that's it. So, so yeah, so that whole thing fits with Blazor so, so well for me. Um, and it's just been such a really, you know, really productive way to work. Yeah, I definitely want to check out the book now, not just for the Blazor stuff, but for your your perspective, because I um, I like your perspective. Um, the project I'm on, I'm on is going a completely different way, so I kind of kind of wish <laughs> I could dig back into the Blazor world. But um, no, it sounds great. Yeah, I hope so. I hope people like it. <laughs> I really do. I just um, yeah, it's um, I, I've just found Blazor such a pleasure to work with. I just hope the book enables people to understand how useful it could be. I mean, not that I believe it's it's the answer to all problems. Like there is no silver bullet in our industry. There's always you know it's always got to be the right tool for the job. But I think it's um, I think it, I just think it is a, it is a very good tool at what it does. From the website, it makes it look like it's about halfway done. Uh, so you got another year to go oh the book yeah so yeah, yeah so the the meep isn't quite up to date so i i'm up to chapter eight and i think we've got i think six on the on the meep right um but i'm doing a bit of back work at the moment so i'm i've i got it shows it shows how disorganized i can be at times i got to chapter seven before i was like okay i've had enough it staring at what frankly is looking like a pretty ugly application and this is rather embarrassing considering i'm writing a book on front-end development and i've got i've basically just taken all the i've used the default bootstrap styling through the whole thing and it just looks really rubbish so when i uh, did chapter seven i i just overhauled the ui and actually tried to make it look good because you know within my limited abilities as a as a ui designer um just tried to make it look a bit nicer um and where the book uh goes out for periodic reviews uh sort of three big reviews through the course of the book so we're just we're now about to do the second of those big reviews uh so i'm i'm now spending my time start i've gone all the way back to chapter two and i'm actually working back now through the chapters to to make put them all back to uniform so they all use this new design and i'm and what i'm actually doing literally right now is i'm uh Hark back to what I said earlier about the interaction with customers already and people who have bought the book is I'm actually now going back through all of the comments people have left on each chapter and then adjusting the chapters based on those comments. So some places I'm just doing basics like fixing some typos and some grammar problems. Other places I'm rewriting paragraphs to help clarify points or I'm 
adding bits in because people feel like there was a bit of a gap. So I'm I'm backfilling. So I'm basically going through that process at the moment. So there's a little bit of a pause on the actual chapter development. And then once I've done that, the book goes off review and then I, I'll carry on with chapter eight. And I've got all the code written for chapter eight and everything. I just literally need to write the text. But but yeah, we just got to do this first. So we're getting there. The idea we're hoping is to have the book sort of ready just after November because we're going to, we've had a lot of discussions about this because the book originally was kind of, we were hoping for sort of summer of this year but like as happens when you're writing books things come out of the woodwork problems arise and you get slight delays and things life gets in the way a bit sometimes as well so it's, it's it's pushed back a bit and it got a bit to a point where we were talking and we were like what we none of us wanted to do was drop a book in say september that was based on .NET 5 with .NET 6 two two three months away we were like no, none of us want to do this. And we don't think people who were buying the book would want that either. We were we were like sort of asked a few and like I sort of reached out to a couple of people and said, like, what do you think about this? And you know, sort of people I know and to ask their opinion. And like, you know what? We'd rather wait a couple more months, have the book updated, and then get that. Because at the end of the day, it's the hardest thing with print books, isn't it? That ultimately they're they're a snapshot in time and and once they're out in print that's it that that's your your bite the cherry gone so yeah that that's uh, definitely a good plan because my boss writes uh books on c-sharp and yeah by the time you finish the book you know his last one that he wrote was c-sharp 8 and then just before it landed nope there's c-sharp 9 and so they're the the language is going so fast that the book authors can't keep up and so he's actually skipping c-sharp 9 and just going to his next book's going to be on c-sharp 10. Yeah, but yeah, there are a it lot definitely. of work. There are a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, I, I've learned a lot actually. It's it's been a really interesting experience because it's it's taught me a lot about writing. That's one thing. I mean, Manning are great at, at sort of bringing you on as a writer and, and giving you lots of support for that. I've got um, my my development editor is amazing. She's really helped me a lot. So she might she probably won't listen to this, but hello, Kristen, if you are listening, <laughs> she's been she's been. Yeah, she's been really, really great. So, so that's been that's been really awesome. But it's also uh, an amazing uh, kind of learning experience in terms of personal discipline because I've been getting up at like sort of half five, six in the morning, doing about two or three hours of writing before I start work. This so, is not part of your work. It's actually like a second job. Basically. Yeah, it's basically like a second job. Yeah, and then like just to make things really interesting, me and my wife had our our first child at se- it's, it's September last year. So Congrats. just. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, and obviously I I changed jobs about the same time as well uh, to join the startup. So, and and my, uh, the startup I work for, the the co-founders there and the people I work with there are incredibly supportive as well, which is, which has been, which has been brilliant. So, so yeah, but it's been a very interesting experience and personal discipline to sort of do that on a regular basis and, you know, put the time in and I usually spend sort of most of Saturday writing as well. And then, Wow. I've also got open source projects to keep up to date. And oh god! So, so let me just say, you, you've got a tiny baby. You yeah. work for a startup, yeah, and you've, you're writing a book, and you're doing this yeah. simultaneously. And he's managing a whole group of Blazor libraries that <laughs> done open source. How do you find yeah. the time? Yeah, I don't know. It's really weird when you say it like that. I, a, I'm like, I don't know. It feels like weird. <laughs> I feel a little bit like bashful. I'm like, I, I'm honestly, I'm like the, literally the least 
like organized productive person in the world honestly Lots of my wife my wife will tell you that <laughs> uh, yeah my, yeah my coffee machine is nearly worn out bless it like <laughs> I've, I've just got i've just got chucks uh trucks of uh coffee beans just being poured into my back garden every other day <laughs> take a scoop and i just chew them now i don't even bother turning them into coffee but <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's when, when like you have discussions like this and and uh, everything gets laid out in front. It sounds really impressive, but it, it's it's just like a necessity thing. If you have those things to do, you find the time to do them. I think what's really important because I'm a, I, I sort of I think it's really important as well to understand, especially people listening, from a mental health perspective. Like this is not always sunshine and rose. Like I I can be a like my again. My wife will tell you. Some days I'm not great to be around because I've, I'm stuck on the book. I can't think of how I want to say something. I can't work out the right way to do it. I'm like, I want to hit a deadline. Like, so you get that kind of anxiety and that frustration and stuff. And like, she's, again, she, my wife has been amazing through this. Like the support she's given me to do this and get this done. I, I Again, I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to do what I do without her, like, and her support. But yeah, it's not all it's not all smiles and roses and, and anything. And it that and it is sometimes it's just late nights, early mornings and and feeling really tired and relying on your coffee machine and and stuff. But I think it's like everything, it's it's a labor of love. And I, I really like I really love working with Blazer. I I think it's like it's just been that I've always been passionate about my job, but it's just been that thing that's kind of ignited, I know, this extra fire, you know, sort of extra fire in me, if you like. And you just I don't know you just find these times to do things I want I want other people to enjoy it as much as I do so you know I, I want to write this book to help people get into it. I want to write good open source libraries to help people build apps better like it I'm not that's my motivation for doing it it's not not anything else really and yeah it just kind of gets you through on the on the days when you don't want to get up and whatever yeah so what's something you've learned about Blazor that isn't in the docs you know while writing the book and trying to come up with your sample app what have you learned that's not well known? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Mm. I don't know. I don't know if I've got an answer for that, actually. What's something I've learned that's not? Uh, well, this is a very, very specific example, actually. I'll give you this one. I've realized that when you, so when you write a, I'll, I'll, this is going to be really specific as well. So I do apologize if this, if this sounds like gobbledygook. But when you write a custom form component and you inherit from input base, there's a there's a method you have to override. Uh, try pass value from string, I think it's called. If you write your controls a certain way, you, that method is null and void, and you don't need it. And I found that I, I wrote. So what I did in the book was when you in the uh, forms validation section, we obviously create a form to add a trial into the system. As part of adding a trial, you say how long it takes roughly to complete the trial. So I was like, well. I'm going to store that in minutes in the in the DB because that makes sense total to, total minutes. But from a user perspective, that would be a bit horrible to have to type. You know, oh that that was three hours twenty five minutes. Okay, let me just get my calculator and work out what that is. You know, they're not going to no, no one wants to do that. So I was like, that's a good that will be a great example to use as a, as to write a custom form control. They can add. I'll, I'll create for form control with two boxes, one for hours, one for minutes. They can put that value in and I'll do the conversion in there in the custom control. So when I did that, I realized quite quickly that there was no need for this overwritten method because that overridden method is used to convert 
the string value that's bound to the HTML control back to whatever the type is that you've bound the input control to. Because I had two text boxes, I didn't bind to a single value. I kept them inside of the, the, actual, uh, the actual component I was writing. And then I, I'd already sort of converted them to, to their, their type at that point. So, which was just integers or whatever. So I realized that I was like, I've got no need to convert this. So I don't need to call this method and I can call a different value. There's a, there's a property called value that you can call. And I could call a, there's a couple of different versions of it, whether it's a string value or not a string value and things. And I could just not call the string value version. I could go straight to the generically typed version, which was an int because that's what it's bound to. And I, I actually wrote it and I was like, I, I don't need this. So I was like in the, you know, I sort of wrote my code sample and I was like, oh, well, they, all I'm going to do is just have it throw a not implemented exception because I, I just don't need it. I can't, I'm not just going to leave an empty method body that just felt messy as well. And I kept looking at it and then my technical editor, he commented on it and sort of said like, this seems weird. So I actually emailed Steve and I was like, Steve, I've done this right what have I broken and why, you know, what's wrong? And he actually looked at it, to be fair, he came back and he said, no, that looks fine. He goes, when we, when we envisioned this, we expected there to be one HTML control that you would bind to. Therefore, it would uh, HTML controls deal with all of their values as strings. Hence, you would always need a method that you would have to define as, as the developer creating the component to, to, to define how to convert that value to whatever you want it to be. Therefore, they made it, a method you had to override and implement. And he's like, no, you, your version doesn't need that. You're right. It doesn't need it. Just, yeah, throw no, not implement it. It's fine. So, yeah. So that was a very long-winded way of answering your question. But that was something I discovered, that you don't have to override that method every time. Well, you have to override cool. it. You don't have to implement it. So, yeah. Very cool. So uh, something that our other discussions on Blazor hasn't gone into really much is, is how do you test Blazor? You know, is, you, know, you get a back end and the front end, right? You got to test them both. Yeah. So back end is, I mean, back end is just going to be, say like you're, if you're using WebAssembly, Blazor WebAssembly, you're, you're going to have a, a, an, a, an ASP.NET Core Web API back end. So testing there is whatever you would normally do for testing your, your web APIs. So you can do, you know, your unit testing and you can do integration testing and, and, and all of that. That's fine. For Blazor testing itself, I will always plug BUnit. So that's been written by Eagle Hansen. I've known Eagle for quite a long time now, and he's done a phenomenal job with that library. It's it's so, so good. Um, he's just come out of his preview stage. It's now, uh, it's got its 1.0 tag, really stable. It's it's a great library. So the nice thing about that is it's got, it's really cool that it's got two ways that you can actually test your Blazor components. So you can write it like unit testing, like you would do, I don't know, like a C-sharp service. You can write it in that style if you want to. But he's developed a way of uh, writing the test where you write the test in a component. So you write a component that's a test for a component. And that's really interesting. I think that's the version that he's still iterating. I don't think he's kind of given that a production-ready badge yet, I don't believe. But it's, it's, such, a, it's such a cool idea. Um, and that means that instead of kind of referencing components by type, you can literally write them out as Razor you know, just as elements like you would do in, in any. So it, it's it's a really interesting take on it and it's really, really good. So so B unit is is what I'd say for testing components. But if you've got regular C sharp classes doing stuff in your Blazor app, 
it's the same thing as any other C sharp code. It's just regular unit testing. So X unit, N unit, whatever it is that you you want to use. So that's you know, it's again, it's another great thing about if you're that full stack.net developer, again, you're not you're not learn, you're not having to learn different tools and bits and bobs. Um B, B unit integrates with X unit and N unit and all those things. So again, it's you've got to obviously understand the syntax that B unit has and the APIs it has, but that's it. And so it's a it's another great example of of kind of um, reusing skills and and things you already know. So so yeah, very cool. All right. Does anybody else have any questions before we move on to picks? Yeah, I had we one, can talk actually. for. Go so, ahead, one. I was going to say like so server side um, Blazor versus client side Blazor like. Would you say, like, if you started a new project now, would you just use client-side, do you think? Or is there still value in doing the server-side or the um, cases? At, 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 the, um, at the risk of sounding like a real developer, it depends. So I, the both, both, both hosting models have advantages and disadvantages. I, don't, I, think, I think it's probably fair to say that there's possibly... There's possibly people out there who think that Blazor Server was just a stepping stone to Blazor WebAssembly, and now we've got WebAssembly, we can throw Server away. I don't think I don't think that's the case at all. I think servers are perfectly perfectly uh, good and frankly an interesting uh, way of solving the problem actually um, on its own, and it and it has some great use cases on its own. Um, I think. Again, I personally think uh, Blazor Server is best suited for kind of intranet style apps where you've got solid networks because the, you know, the the drawback with the Blazor Server app is you have to have a stable internet connection. Ultimately, as the name implies, the app's actually running on the server, so you've got your SignalR connection set up between you know your your browser and and the app that's running off on the server. And ultimately, if that network drops, your app stops working, and and that. You know, if you're if you're trying to do it on a public website and you've got people trying to look at it on their phones and their you know their internet's a bit iffy, it's going to just not be a a particularly mm. great experience. But if you if you're looking to build a, a you know an internal app for an enterprise or something like that, it's a phenomenal choice because it's it the speed of development is probably one of the it's probably one of the things that rivals web forms in terms of your ability to build something quickly because it is running on the server. You don't have to worry about having to have a backing API to get to a server and, and a database because you can literally just go and just talk to a repository and get get you know get your uh, items out or query you know your your DB context or however you however you're choosing to to do that stuff. You can just do it. You don't have to go through that extra hop. So you can build apps out very quickly, and like the previous phase, I worked, we built a little internal uh, Blazor server. And, like you can literally get something really highly functional in like a couple of days. Like it was scary how quickly you could like we could build stuff. Um, I, I think WebAssembly is a better fit for public internet because it has the resilience. You know, it's because it is running uh, as a spa. It's in the browser. It doesn't require the server. It can be a PWA. I think it scales better as well, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you need less load on the server. I mean, again, it's kind of a a bit of a myth that Blazor Server can't scale. It can actually scale really well. Um, okay. You just have to make sure you turned on things like WebSockets and and stuff. But it, it can actually scale really well in in you know in the right circumstances in the right configurations. 
but obviously what you can't be is being able to just offload all that work to a client and say, well, I don't need the CPU cycles because they're on your machine, not on mine. And that's where WebAssembly is really useful. Uh, like I say, you can do a PWA with WebAssembly really easily. So that's a uh, that's a big advantage as well. The trade-off with WebAssembly, of course, versus server is server is going to be lightning quick to boot up because it doesn't have to put much in your browser. It's basically like a thin terminal approach. So you've got a little JavaScript file that sets up the SignalR connection, and that's basically it. Any other you know static assets you've got, and that you, you're done. Um, yeah, I think that's always been a problem with SPARs, isn't it? Basically, that's that startup time. Yeah. yeah, and and that's what and, and that's the kind of trade off for WebAssembly. You have that startup time, and because you mm-hmm. have the .NET runtime to download, that mm-hmm. WebAssembly apps, you know, do have a bit of upfront cost. But like you say, it's not really any different to other spars. Other spars have upfront costs. Um, you know, I know JavaScript modules have helped to chunk code up and and make that better, but. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know about uh, about you all, but I've I've seen Angular apps that, are, that have easily crept into like fifteen odd meg size. Oh, like, Angular is terrible with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's <laughs> not it's not difficult. You know, it's not difficult to do. Um, you know, and 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 WebAssembly plays a WebAssembly. You know, again, a lot of people will. There, there's people who do bulk at the size of it, and they're like comparing it to React. Oh, you know, oh, I've got this React app, and it's like 100k, and this is like three meg. Like, what's going on? It's like, well, React's UI piece. This is an entire framework. So there are there are differences there. It's kind of slightly comparing apples and oranges. But ultimately, I think it's fair to say the Blazor team have been very upfront and saying, well, look, we're not building. This is never going to be 100k. It's never going to be because we need we need a .NET runtime. Yeah. Like, do they ever do any kind of like I don't know if they can even do it, but like kind of like tree shaping type techniques? Which they are, would, would yeah, 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 yeah. It's already in there. It's already in there. So it has something called an IL linker, which is the C sharp equivalent, and it just goes through and it strips out anything that you're not using from the the core framework and the base class libraries. Doesn't I don't think it does it in your uh, it doesn't do it in your code. Um, but they're working really hard to annotate the the, the framework mm. really extensively, specifically so that the tree shaking can be optimized to the hilt to strip away anything that's that's not being used. So they're you know they're making strides with that, which is good, and and that's obviously trimming things down. But I think the thing is with this, I I always think like if you actually go and look at websites, like so you hit everyone hears that size and oh my god it's terrible. But actually, if you go and look at sites that you visit regularly. They're ginormous. I mean, Facebook's homepage is seven meg, like <laughs> stuff like that. So if you go and actually look at these these kind of big popular websites, they're downloading huge amounts of data. But you do it, you know, it's, it gets cached. And and Blazor WebAssembly mm. is the same. That runtime gets downloaded. Yes, it, it's you know one point eight meg or whatever, but it gets cached, and you don't pay for it again. Like so, um, once you pay, yeah, that cost it really once, depends on the website. What whether it's a problem like if you're a website like facebook and you get repeat users then yeah it gets cached but if your website is dependent on like google for you know seo and all that stuff then then that would be be a problem because a lot of users are just there for the first time and they might not come back yeah yeah definitely but we can do pre-rendering with blazer WebAssembly if we've got a server element we can do Mm pre-rendering with blazer WebAssembly, so that can help with seo that can help with that feel it like giving that impression that things are a bit quicker and stuff so um i think it's all it's all relative and it's again like i said earlier on there's no silver bullets here you have to pick if you need if your requirement for your app is 
the fastest possible load time with the minimal possible size, then you you want to be looking at like a vanilla JS implementation or something <laughs> really, really lightweight, like, I don't know, like frameworks like Svelte, where you've got these really, really minuscule web components that are, that are as small as you're ever going to get. Like, but but that's the point. It's about picking the right tool mm. and, and and the right thing to to solve the problem and and not moaning or no, moaning is probably a fair but calling out a framework for not being good at something when it's not targeted to be good at that thing isn't really much of a critique it's like that ferrari is really rubbish at carrying 300 hay bales well okay well fair <laughs> enough but it wasn't designed to carry 300 hay bales. so that, i think that's the thing it's it's bearing in mind what it's what, what it is good at and using mm. it for that and not using it for things it's not good at so true yeah and if you're hosting in Azure, uh, WebAssembly is going to be a lot cheaper than going server side. So, yeah, nice. definitely. And the static web app, uh, the new static web apps service they've got integrates now. Uh, that Blaze is natively supported in there, which is cool. So you can have like Azure Functions as your back end. That gets hosted on on like a essentially like blob storage type thing, and you can have like a really really cheap app running there because if functions are on sort of the consumption model however many millions of requests you get for free on those like you can actually have a pretty decent app running there for basically you know sort of pocket change if if that so yeah it's it's really cool so is your book going to cover uh making blazor standalone applications you know similar to like an electron app yeah so i thought about this and i've decided uh we're kind of we're covering this this kind of full stack element so uh, having an api at the front and having the the client we're probably gonna might tackle something a little bit around like a pwa implementation maybe but I, I, i'll be honest i'm still in two minds because it frankly like the pwa thing in blazer is just so easy i mean when you're when you're creating a new blazer app for example it's literally you just check a checkbox when you're creating it and it and it creates the service worker and the manifest json for you there and, it, and so it's done it's done you don't need to do anything like you can add some icons or whatever but like the configuration's done for you and i mean you can obviously tweak that and improve it and, and make it more bespoke but the general implementation is there so and and again the docs cover this and it comes back to my thing earlier if i what i don't ever want to do with this book is just write something that you can just go and read the equivalent in the docs i mean i mean obviously there always is a little bit of crossover but unless i can think of something to add about pwas that isn't just written in the docs i'm not sure so that's going to be something that's a bit towards one of the later chapters so we'll we'll see with that cool all right let's move on to picks why why don't you go first what's your what's your pick this week so i kind of have a i, I, I was kind of struggling with find a pick this week but i thought i'd pick my probably one of my all-time favorite movies it's, it's an australian movie called the castle it's like really old it's probably like Gosh, it's probably more than like 25 years old now. It's about a family and they're getting like kicked out of their home because I think like the government's building like an airport or something where they where they live and they're refusing to so they go to court and all this stuff. And so it's really funny. It's very um it's a yeah, it's this very iconic Australian film. All right. All right. We'll check check it, out. it out. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Caleb, what's your pick? My pick this week is a switch game, which has been a little while, but here we are again. It's actually Dragon Quest Builders 2. It's been out for a couple of years, and uh, I've had a demo for a while and started playing with my son a couple of weeks ago, and then my wife saw us playing it, and she got involved, and we ended up buying the game, and now we're, we're playing it as a family just about every night for like an hour or so. So it's been a lot of fun. 
it's got elements that that appeal to all of us, right? So it's a bit wholesome. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right, Chris. Yeah. Do you have a pick? Something you want to let the uh, <laughs> listeners know about besides your book? We'll put links and everything in into the show notes for for the books and your blog and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so, cool. Yeah, can I can I have two? Oh, absolutely. That's okay. yeah. yeah. So one is a, a program here, but I'm a framework Tailwind CSS. I'm a huge fan of Tailwind CSS. I, I think it's I think it's a fantastic framework. I love using it. It works brilliantly with Blazor. Have it. It's a it's a utility based framework. So it's it's all about it's not about using pre made sort of HTML structures with pre made classes. It's all about taking individual styles and applying them to CSS classes to create a look. I just love it because it means not everything looks like Bootstrap and. <laughs> Um, it's just, and it works really well with Blazor because it's, with a component, well, not just Blazor, any component-based framework, because you can, you, you can end up with these huge strings of, of class names building up this style, but when you, you can then wrap, you know, you, you, you wrap that in a component and now you just deal with this nice clean component tag and all those styles are hidden, which is, is really nice. So it works really well with, with component frameworks. So that's my kind of, my geekier version. For that I guess one, my, so, I did, I did want to say. The world that I'm in right now, which is PHP and Laravel and Vue and stuff, Tailwind seems to be really popular, hmm. like comparable to Bootstrap. So I'm with you there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, my other one, which I was going to say was less geeky, but it's probably not. It's a series I watched recently on Netflix. And I, I'm really worried now I've forgotten the title, but I think it's called Bone and Shadow. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a really interesting one. I, I just kind of like that kind of style of, of, of series. So yeah, I thought that was a really interesting one to watch. So I kind of shadow and that bone, shadow oh. and bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was that was really good. I really enjoyed that. So that was fun. Very cool. I don't know where you found the time to watch it, <laughs> <laughs> but hey, yeah, me neither. I don't. <laughs> well, I noticed now on Netflix you can um you can play the the playback and you can do it at like one quarter speed or one half you, speed yeah you can yeah yeah that's true actually yeah i just maxed it all out and like binge watched yeah because there's just hour. so much content on there you're never gonna get through it unless you uh, watch no, it two no. half speed <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh my pick this week is uh both why and myself have uh the oculus quest 2's vr headsets and i've hit that age where i you know have to have reading glasses and things like that and i got tired of trying to fit my glasses inside my VR headset. So I Mm. went and picked up a a set of optical, I guess, add-ons. They just they just snap right onto the the eyepieces that are in the existing headset. You send them your 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 prescription for your eyes and then they send back a set of pieces. They just snap in there and and so then you know I don't have to wear glasses anymore. I can just put my headset on anytime I want. So the ones that I went with, there's a couple of different brands out there, but the one that I went with is made by VR Optician. And I think they are, I think they are an English company because I, it, they had, it took a while for them to ship to me, but, oh, they're German, Germany company. So I knew they're coming from Europe somewhere, but they're only about, uh, about 70 bucks. So not too bad if you're going to use your headset a lot and don't want to have to put your glasses on and off all the time. So check them out. Oh, okay, so you just put it on, it's, like you, you take the lens of the Oculus out, and then you you put that on. No, no, they snap over the existing lenses. Oh, okay, oh, interesting, cool. So if you have to, it's wear glasses, definitely um, yeah, a problem I have with my glasses. It's a first world problem, but it is a problem. <laughs> mm. 
And, and they make them for all different headsets, not just the Oculus Quest 2. So they have them for the PlayStation VR. They've got it for the HD mm. Vive, the Oculus Go, Samsung Odyssey, all that kind of stuff. So, so, so if you're if you're short-sighted or long-sighted, um, when you put on a VR set, are you still short-sighted or long-sighted? Is it? Like, is, is things are blurry, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, yeah. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. Some headsets have t- in the past, or maybe more expensive ones, will have a little diopter adjustment that you can, you know, dial. Mm, kind of make kind it like, focus. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of like a, an SLR camera ha- has. Mm. So they have little things you can focus, but uh, at least the Oculus Quest 2 does not have that. So you, you have to either put your glasses inside or get these special made lenses. Mm. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was a great show. I really enjoyed uh, learning some things about Blazer and, and look forward to your book coming out. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. It's yeah. been a pleasure to be here and talk to you all this evening. It's been, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been really fun. Yeah. So if our listeners have questions, they want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch? What's the best way? Probably like get me on Twitter. So I'm there, Chris underscore Sainty. Otherwise, there's my blog. It's chrissainty.com. Um, there's a contact form in there somewhere. But yeah, probably Twitter is the probably better one to get me on. Sweet. And our listeners, we'd love to hear from you. So if you want to give us some feedback, let us know how we can do things better. They can reach out to me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and I am Caleb Wells Coates. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah, been fun. Yep. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye, y'all.